In this episode, Peter Constantine speaks about his journey into world of languages, his translation work in multiple languages and his novel Purchased Bride. Set in Turkey in the final years of the Ottoman Empire, The Purchased Bride reflects the true story of authors Peter Constantine's Greek grandmother Maria, who was bought when she was 15 by a much older wealthy Ottoman man. The novel Purchased Bride can be purchased using the link given in the show notes. Peter Constantine's recent translation include works by Augustine, Rousseau, Machiavelli, Gogol and Tolstoy. He is a Guggenheim fellow and was awarded Pen Translation Prize for six early stories by Thomas Mann and the National Translation Award for the Undiscovered Chekhov. His translation of complete works of Isaac Babel published by W.W. Norton in 2001 received the Corrit Jewish Literature Award and a National Jewish Book Award citation. He is a professor of translation studies at the University of Connecticut and the publisher of World Poetry Books. Welcome to our podcast Harshaniyam Peter so nice to have you with us. Thank you very much for the invitation. You are exposed to different cultures, diverse cultures and so many languages at a very young age. Could you please tell us in detail about it? Yes, I so I was born in London. My father was British of Turkish background. Um in fact I should say of Turkish and Greek background because his mother was Greek and his father was Turkish although when the mother married uh my grandfather then the, all Greek ended and she became completely identified completely with the Turkish culture language so he grew up speaking Turkish but when they left when he moved to England became a british citizen then that was really the identity that that he that he what he identified with let's say but my my mother was austrian and i grew up in greece i would say that 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 experience of growing up in in greece from 3 to 11 of course those are such formative years and then two years back to england to boarding school and to school in general and then back to greece again let's say 14 to 17 so i would i if you ask me where did you grow up i would say greece really but austria was also a very important element because we only spoke german with my mother and i would spend every summer with my cousins and my grandmother uh, in austria so that and the very vibrant dialect spoken in that village which was on the borderline or I'm um, sorry the border the borderlands don't know why I said borderline or that's rather interesting so let's say the borderlands of of Slovakia and Czech Republic literally just a few meters away so that that had a very sort of vibrant language and also in fact slavic was also spoken there so we had village dialect and slavic so my first my first introduction to the slavic language is the slavic family was through the local dialects of 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 Czech and Slovak that were also spoken in our our borderland village so that there in that sense straight away one i i then really did grow up with english german these austrian dialects and, and slavic greek straight away without really having to do much for it in other words it was something that 
just existed. I think in, in many parts of the world that is the case. From what I've heard and seen of, of India, for instance, so many people will speak four, five, six languages, and it's completely natural and expected. In, in Europe, we're always surprised. But if you grow up in one of those situations, one of those situations where many languages are spoken, then, of course, I think the brain just reaches out and absorbs these languages. And it's a natural thing to speak, let's say, Telugu to your grandmother and maybe Marathi to your father and different, um, you know. Especially in southern part of India, each state has its own language. For example, my mother tongue is Telugu. Hindi is spoken widely across the country. So we were taught Hindi in school. And of course, uh, thanks to British, <laughs> we are taught English. right? So these three languages, most of us, no, we know these three languages. Most of us can read, write and understand these three languages. So when, after the student life, probably uh, some of us may go and uh, work in some other state, right? Southern state, let us say. Obviously, once you spend your life there, you will get to know one more language minimum. Right? That's how it is. The part where uh, you spent your life in Greece in childhood, uh, it's very interesting, actually. Other than uh, Greece and uh, Turkish, I guess uh, you were exposed to Romani and one more language, uh, Arvanitika and uh, Sanskrit, of course. Uh, so th when I was a teenager, when I returned to Greece, I went to the, so the international school that I went to had a, a scholarship system and the, the headmaster, Mr. Myers, who was a fascinating character, in fact, uh, a major cricket champion uh, in the 1920s in, in, in England, like major uh, star. He was quite elderly, but he, he had set up the school in, a, in an interesting way. So most of my lessons were in Russian. They also taught Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese yes, but they, in fact, he wanted me to, he said, choose Russian or Vietnamese. I chose Russian. I always wonder what would have happened if I'd done my schooling in Vietnamese. Now, why Russian and Vietnamese? So Russian made particular sense at that school because it was still during the Soviet era in the 1970s and early 80s. The, let's say the Russian department had students who were either children of, let's say, Polish or Bulgarian, uh, Czech, let's say, diplomats in Greece. Uh, and all of them knew Russian, of course, because that they'd, they'd always learned Russian as a first, as a first second language. They spoke their own language, and then Russian was very important because of the East Bloc. So there was there was that. Uh, our teachers, interestingly enough, were emigres, meaning that they were from. Mrs. Diko, who was our, my main teacher, uh, had been born abroad from parents who had fled the uh, the revolution. In 19, they they'd fled Russia in 1918, and she was born shortly thereafter. But her Russian was absolutely excellent. What was interesting there as well was that despite the, the books being Soviet, we also read things that were not available in the Soviet Union. Authors such as Nabokov or Isaac Babel, who he was available at the time in the Soviet Union, but not actually, he had been disallowed during the Stalin years and then rehabilitated Isaac Babel who I then later translated. But even though he had been rehabilitated, as one might say, 
it was still, when I went to the Soviet Union in 1979, I spent a lot of time trying to find in the bookstores, find works of Isaac Babel, and there was just nothing available. Anyway, so in other words, it wasn't an unusual setup in that sense at that school. Now, as far as Sanskrit is concerned, they just happened to have a, a, a Sanskrit teacher, and they asked us, do you want to do ancient Greek or do you want to do Sanskrit? And I thought well, Sanskrit would be an interesting option. I saw the Devanagari writing. I thought that was very interesting. And, I, and, and so as a teenager, we did Sanskrit. I, not that I remember much, but w what did surprise me with Sanskrit was that, so we lived in the, in a sort of a shantytown area right outside Athens because we had major financial problems. Luckily, I was a scholarship student. I started hearing things that, that, that reminded me of Romani. Like we didn't realize that Romani was, was, originally an Indian language, really, that the Roma were, had originally migrated, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500, I'm not sure about the history. In fact, they themselves did not know when I initially asked them. They did not really know what they thought they'd always been in Europe somehow. This was before internet, before before much education, as it were. But I noticed things like trishul, for instance, which is the word for cross, for us, for us, for the, in Romani, so when you go to church, you'd say something like, do you make your cross? Because as a church, you have to do a trishul outside. Now, trishul, as many people would know, uh, is the great symbol of Hindu, the, the Trinity, like the Tridevi, right? So that the fact that, that that was, for me, a big surprise, but even you know, words like Rani for Mrs. or, I don't know, when counting ek, duitrin, star punch, those are, I think you would understand those. So we, we didn't have very, we used to play soccer, football with all the local kids. Now they, the Roma at that time, I don't know if that's still the case actually, but there, there were large areas that were like fields and they would bring their tents and stay there for a couple of months near where we lived, and then they would move on. So we never, we didn't really interact all that much, but from the interactions and from hearing the language they were speaking. You mean to say these were nomadic tribes uh, who used to? No, they are. Generally, the, so the, the term gypsy, for instance, which now is not acceptable, although I will say in Britain, it's a term used by the, the Romani often for themselves, that the gypsy language, gypsy jib, as they would call it, e even though it's a problematic word, it's often used by the community in itself. But let, so let's say the Roma or the gypsy traditionally are travelers. And in England, in fact, they're called travelers as well. They have caravans and they move around or did. Um, now it's maybe semi or not at all. Um, I've lived for 40 years in, in the States. So what I'm talking about, in a sense, is from 40 years ago. In fact, I'm going to Greece tomorrow. So I think you're inspiring me to look into what, what's happened if they're still moving around. One peculiar term which I have come across for the first time, terminal speaker for a particular language. So terminal speakers, are, so the sad situation where so many languages in the world are dying and Terminal speakers are the last generation of speakers, and it could mean various things. First thing it means is that you don't, you're terminal because you're not going to give that language to the next generation. So that's why it's terminal. The next generation, so you will not speak the language to your children or, or to the younger generations. The second thing it often means is that you don't do it because you don't speak the language well enough anymore. 
that you were a generation where your parents spoke the language or your family spoke the language to you, but you didn't, you'd respond in the dominant language. In the case of Arvanitika, which is the, the one of the one of the local languages in Greece, in, in that case we would have parents speaking Arvanitika to us and we would answer in Greek. And that was and then maybe a couple of words in between. But you know the language well enough to understand anything, but it's a, maybe a passive knowledge. And that could also be at different levels. Meaning that yes, you speak it, but not well in and you make grammatical errors if you're forced to speak it because you're not just not used to speaking it but you know the vocabulary you know what things are or it could also just be that you simply know it if it's said but you don't actually know how to produce it the word if somebody says to you how do you say how do you say i don't know car and you say i don't know but if you hear the word you know what it is so that's those are the different ways that terminal speakers are considered or defined Arvanitika, is there a script for that language or it's only spoken? No, it's an unwritten language. Greece has, has many non-Greek languages with m many, I think I would say about six maybe. So there's Vlachika, there's Pomakika, there is uh, Tsakonika, there's Ponash, which, which is one of, the, one of the Slavic languages in the north. So none of those have a, have a alphabet except Tsakonika, which is a, it, it's a sister language of Greek. It's the only language that's genetically relatively close to Greek, meaning it, it uh, people say that it, it, it's a split of, of ancient Greek that developed in its own way in the mountains and the Peloponnese, because the landscape was very rough down there and, and cut off. So people for centuries would live in mountains and have very little connection with other people. And so the language would develop in its own way over, over a period of thousand years. So there are no efforts to archive the language? Uh in terms of recording or something, just going to die. Very, very little, unfortunately, yes. it's yeah. These languages are not held in any high esteem. They're not taught or studied. There are some linguists who are working on it, luckily, as a sort of a last effort. So there are hopes that we at least will have... I, th I think within one generation, they will not no longer be spoken, but hopefully there'll be enough... So I was saying, I hope that there's enough material there for next generations to, who, who might be interested in, in relearning the language, to have something there. Early days of your life, you were exposed to so many different languages. You think that is the one which drawn you to translations? Yes, yes, I think so. Actually, that is a very interesting question. It translation hit hit me by surprise. So I wouldn't say that I w if you'd asked me this question when I was 17 or 18 or 19, I would maybe not have thought so. I would have said I'm interested in languages, I'm interested in reading in different languages, and it's just wonderful to do that, be able to do that. Uh, I, the first time I did a translation was was of, of a Dutch friend who was writing, and, and uh, I thought the story was rather interesting. I thought, you've written this, you've published this in Holland, wouldn't it be nice to send it out to a, a literary magazine here in the United States? And um, I really enjoyed the uh, that, and that was the first revelation that this is something that could really be very exciting. I had done a translation before. When I was 16 or 17, I'd been asked to translate 
a very short piece of, of Nietzsche, the, the German philosopher, into Greek. Uh, and that was for a footnote for an encyclopedia. Um, that was a tough experience because Nietzsche, of course, is very difficult. And so I had to try and recreate that in Greek. That, that was, I would say that was not successful. I think I failed in that translation. And that maybe even made me think, oh, this is too difficult to be doing. So the first natural approach was, the, the first time I felt comfortable translating really was with, with the, the, the Dutch uh, short story. I didn't mention the author uh, who had been a friend, but it didn't work out because he was quite horrified by the result. Now, I would like to say in my own defense that his Dutch American friends thought it was very good. The editors thought it was good too, but he had the trouble. He wanted me to follow things in a much more literal way, like his sentence structures, which in, in the Germanic sentence structures are quite difficult to recreate. You need to move them around in English. At least that's my interpretation, but he didn't want it. And so it, that was never published. But I so much enjoyed the process that it started my career as a translator. So I, I wanted to add that, that I'm very thankful to him for the opportunity, even though it's sad that we didn't manage to publish what I translated. That is from Dutch to English, right? Dutch to English translation. Yes, that's from Dutch to English. And I found in retrospect, because now I'm doing quite a few translations. In the last two years, I've been working from into in, translating into modern Greek. And there, it's a very different experience because when you translate into English, most of the writers you're translating know English to some extent. And then it's a question of how they feel about their work. Do they want to involve themselves and try to control the translation or not? It depends on the character of the author, I think, and on the author's relationship somehow to their own work. Now, there's much more freedom when you translate into modern Greek because you can do as you please. Now, it does, that doesn't mean that one is more casual, but there isn't that trouble that the translators into English often have, where authors say, no, this is what I mean, you need to say it this way, and then, of course, you start having trouble when it's unidiomatic, with back and forth. So that's an, an issue that we all face, I think, but it can have catastrophic results, like when the author absolutely insists and you cannot send it out because then it would be a weak translation. It would sound unidiomatic. You would see the foreign language, the language you're translating from in the text. Its rhythms might sound like someone whose English isn't very strong if you follow the directives or, or what the original author is insisting on. Oh, lesson here for uh, budding translators, I believe, is uh, don't work with uh, authors uh, who know the destination language. Yes, that, that's an interesting way of putting it. Now, unfortunately, it's, so many people speak English, right? I think what you're saying is very interesting. I would say yes, but no. The, the yes is be careful who you work with and how be careful of your relationship with your author because the author could get in the way and that the author can also be of great help. I have relationships with authors where I'm very happy to ask them, what did you mean with this? And they will then uh, let me know. But they won't tell me how to say it. They won't say this is wrong. In some cases, they might say, you've misunderstood 
this is what I meant. Could you fix it somehow? And then that's very useful. But if you, if you have an author who really insists that you do certain things, first of all, it becomes a fight. In a fight, I, I don't mean this in a, I don't mean it in a physical way. Uh, what I mean is that they say, no, it's, it's, this is how it has to be in English, but then why? And then you have all this correspondence. It slows things down. It becomes almost, things grind to a halt as you try to explain why you're doing things. So that was my first experience in translation, which all, which ruined the project, but which also made me very careful for the rest of my career and the subsequent 35 years to, to be very careful how I handle authors and how I interact with them. And in many cases, I also translated authors who were no longer here, like Anton Chekhov or Tolstoy and the Russian authors, the Gogol, so that they're the only the only response you might get would be from Russian readers who might agree or disagree, but the author is not there to uh, to involve him or herself. When you talk about uh, this uh, 19th century Russian authors, um, there must be, there are several versions of translations already available. And do you go back and read them? I, I try not to because, in fact, I, when I say I try not to, I don't. There are two schools of thought there. I think some academic translators want to know everything and then work. Uh, I, I prefer to know nothing and, and work from the text freshly. I think the problem is that if you're, if you're looking at someone else while you're translating, it's easy to fall into the trap of, of saying, oh, this, this works well, and then copying it out. Uh, oh, this works well, and then copying it out. So that that could border on plagiarism, but maybe let's not be that extreme. But let's just say, okay, that's you're following what somebody else has done. The second thing I've seen, actually, when I actually do comparisons of translation for from an academic perspective, is that that people will also have reacted to the text. But if the original translator translated something in a specific way, then they will translate it in another way, regardless of whether the original was the right way of doing it. So what I mean is, any way you look at, if you're following another translation, it you can fall into all kinds of traps, either copying or reacting against the same, no, that's already been done, let me do something different. And either way, you, your translation can suffer from that. The great translator Robert Fagels was known for looking at everything as he translated. In fact, in his office, he would have stands with, when he was translating the Odyssey or the Iliad, there were stands of almost every translation you could think of, and he would look at them all. And yet his own translation was spectacularly original. So it depends. For, some, for him, this was a perfect way of working, which is why he was such a successful translator. For many others, it might not be such a good idea. One of the first books that you got published is about Japanese street speech. So in the 1980s, uh, Japanese had become, Japan had, had flowered out and, and become a major power. Everyone was learning Japanese, but it happened relatively suddenly. And there were very few grammars of Japanese at the time. Uh, they were very competent, but they were also very formal. One really needed a book that that just had street speech somehow. How do you, 
How, how do you, how do teenagers greet each other? How do you, it was actually, the book was called Japanese Street Slang. So there were also uh, sexual slang, drugs, prostitution, just all the kinds of language that were not, would not be covered, let's say, in a normal textbook, or the language that maybe wasn't readily available. In some cases, language that even the Japanese, you wouldn't find in the, in the Japanese dictionary. My very first thought with doing Japanese street slang was really just doing a book that had maybe a little bit on the wild side, but just natural speed. But I got carried away. And then there was more and more sex slang, drugs, pornographic moments in there as well. Anything that you wanted to discuss in Japanese that would not be in the grammar would be in there. So how was the response? There were some teams that came in from Japan that wanted to find out who I was. They thought I was Japanese pretending to be a foreign writer, so that I was interviewed a lot. Uh, the Japan Times, the, the, the response was, was very positive. Uh, one thing that I did, the way I wrote it, in order to defang the, the sharpness of the book, was that I tried to have a little bit of humor. I wrote it in a, in a literary style, or at least that's what I, I tried to do as well, explaining cultural aspects. I remember the, the Japan Times sort of focusing in on that, that, that it was written in a, in a sort of surprising, with a surprising literary tone for, for, for the kind of book that it was. But but the, uh, the the critics, the, I think the reason they were positive was because it was something that was really important and that was missing for just for various re various reasons. Uh, the book was also adopted in um, in linguistics courses in in uh, universities. So even though there were some some aspects of it that might be considered shocking, uh, students were studying the patterns, the grammar of, of street speech, which, uh, which simply just was not documented in anywhere else. All in all, what are the different languages that you translated from so far? The most, by page count, I would say most of the translations I've done have been from Russian, then German, which is my mother tongue. I did quite, quite a few translations from that. Interestingly, initially, I was frightened of translating from German because I thought it was too close, which is why I preferred to translate from Dutch. Because one of my very first translations were from Dutch. I felt I needed a bit of distance. But that uh, distance is an interesting thought, I think, for a translator. And maybe if you are translating from your mother tongue, you do need it. I felt more comfortable doing that as I became more... And as my career developed, I started doing more German translations as well. But most of them have been from Russian. And then I did two novels from Slovene. I did the uh, translated from Italian, The Essential Machiavelli for Modern Library. And then from French, The Essential Rousseau. Mainly European languages, not Japanese, because even though Japanese was the first language that it specialized in, as one might say, although a very specific aspect of Japanese, I, I never learned to read it well enough to be able to do literary translations. So I feel that when I read Japanese, I'm maybe at the level of a 12 or 13-year-old, which, which in Japan would mean that you'd have trouble reading the newspaper because of the characters. So 
had I done that, I was at some point I was interested in in, in Japanese and wanted to continue, but it would have meant complete and absolute immersion and and a dedication to it that that somehow that was too too diff, it was too difficult for me basically that's 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 the long and the short of it um and i was working on russian translations at the time so russian won out so russian dutch german french italian and greece greek and slovenian slovenian yeah now recently I, i've been translating quite a lot into greek and into german so that's a new venture in the last two years all these books that you have translated it is these books you have, you choose them to translate and or are they commissioned recently i choose and suggest so that's a recent thing in the past so i've been a professor of translation studies at the university of connecticut now for seven years before then i did only translation work that was basically my career and there before so before the university i would either be approached by publishers i'd worked with such as random house modern library or w norton who who would maybe ask me they would say as in the case of augustine the confessions which was one of the the recent, more recent books i translated that they wanted to have a, a version uh of of Augustine's confessions and did I want to do that so so it went two ways the other way would be i would say i think this author as with anton chekhov for instance these stories here have not been translated and anton chekhov is one of the most important short story writers so we should have a wider range of his work available in english so that was my own suggestion so it goes in different ways but now that i can now that i'm an academic i can be a bit more experimental than i could be when i was a, a professional literary translator meaning that was my full income i i could do books i can do now books into modern greek or or german where that don't need to be so mainstream they don't need to become bestsellers let's say so the university supports it when you want to get them published or how is it you have to go and pitch in for pitch in with publishers oh this the university's encourages its its professors to to work in their field so in my case i'm encouraged to to do translations and also write about translation so that's that kind of support in academia is is, is very very useful and helpful and we have some space uh, to work now for instance uh, i'm on sabbatical this this semester so i have a lot of time to do translation work which is yes that's a direct support from the university which gives you several months to just do exactly what you need to be doing i have a uh, very good editors in greece which is why i'm also confident to to translate into greek it's a language i grew up with but i have lived in america for 40 years now so even if let's say you can speak a language and people will assume that you are a greek because you grew up there if you haven't lived in greece and and are not constantly involved in greek it it is a little bit of a, a dangerous venture unless i would say you have very competent editors you can work with uh, and that's given me the courage to do that because it was something that i wanted to do both for greek and german uh 
So had you asked me 10 years ago, would you ever translate into modern Greek? I would have said, no, absolutely not. Because you need to choose the language. You need to commit to a language. And I've committed to English. All my translation is into English. That's my specialty. So I'm very happy now that I'm given the chance to experiment and go back to my original mother tongues after all these years and, and work into them. But as I said, I wouldn't do it if I didn't have very good editors who help there. So the editors is very useful, the group work. So what would you say when I ask you, what is your mother tongue? Ah, yes. I would say German's my mother tongue. Uh, maybe, maybe I have three, three, no, maybe I have two mother tongues, Greek and, no, I don't know. Actually, okay, German's my mother tongue. Okay. Yes. No, it's hard to say because my, 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 I only ever spoke German with my mother. Uh, she became Greek later on. She took on Greek uh, Greek passport, but her Greek was never very good vocabulary, but she had a German accent and would make grammatical errors. So it's hard when I hear the word mother to identify Greek with her. But so yeah, German's my mother tongue. So if there is uh, something called father tongue, what was your father tongue? Then English, actually, because my father would not speak Greek with me, even though he spoke Greek. He, my father was worried that every time I learn a foreign word, I will lose an English word. So he did not, he was not happy that I would speak German. He tried to discourage that. In fact, he had, he'd been a, a major in the British army and had, had fought in Egypt during World War II. So German to him was a, a terrible experience. But my mother, we just spoke it all the time. So he, it, it was like hearing the language of the enemy in his house. But he married my mother, so that was part of the deal. But of all these languages, which one do you think is most amenable for translation into English and why? The European languages, the Germanic languages, maybe this goes for any language. Languages that, that are closest are probably the easiest to translate in many ways. And as you start moving away into different language families and different cultures, that is... It, it gets a bit more difficult. Even that one example where you brought up at, uh, the aspects of Trishul and what Trishul is. Now, if, if, if I were translating from one of the Indian languages, a culturim like that, uh, which would mean that it's a, a unit of culture where, where in that language, Telugu or Marathi or Gujarati or Hindi, the reader knows exactly what it is. It comes with a very rich baggage, that word. What are you going to do when you translate into English? And there's, that can happen in every sentence. So that's what I'm trying to say. The further the languages are apart, culturally and linguistically, the more problematic that could become or more of a challenge. Whereas if you're translating from Dutch and, and German, Frisian, which is technically the closest language to English, it's uh, spoken in, in, in parts of Holland. These peoples have, these nations have, have been interacting for hundreds of years. The languages are quite close. So I would say that's a bit easier to translate. What is your translation workflow and has it changed over the years? Yes, actually, my, so my workflow, the way I, I translate has not changed, actually. I was worried initially, if you'd asked me this at the beginning of my career, I would have said, please ask me something else because I had a bit of a bad conscience. I would either read a book and then decide to translate it and then 
try and forget the book because I want to experience it again. Or if possible, not read it and just experience it. Now that can sound quite shocking, I think, to some people. But uh, what gave me courage was uh, that the great uh, translator Gregory Rabassa, who's probably one of the most important translators in, in, in America of Spanish, Latin American literature, he had said, oh, I, I try never to read the books. I, I translate word by word and I want to experience it. And when he said that, that gave me courage. And I've realized ever since that there are some people who will work that way and need to work that way and others who absolutely need to do it the other way around, which is to study the book, maybe study the author, maybe read the complete works of the author and then start working. For me, I'm worried that I might jump to some conclusions when I do that and that might affect me. So my general tendency would be, I would say, to I need to know what I'm translating. So, of course, I need to read the book, but then I really want to forget it. And I seem to have managed to develop that kind of amnesia that, that I have no idea what it's about and then experience it page by page as I... And the general way I work would be I, I translate maybe two or three pages. I work relatively slowly about... I would try to do a thousand words a day when I was a professional translator and that almost never worked. It would always be 800. So very slowly... And then after I had three or four pages, go back again and read them again with amnesia, like this is somebody else's work and I'm correcting it. And then again, and so this is sort of almost an obsessive way of working. But what that would mean as well is that when I was on page 20, then those 20 pages were pretty much ready, unless something happens later on where I need to go back and and change something because of a better understanding of what the author intended. But pe people work in very many different ways. Some will do a very rough draft of a whole novel and then go back and clean it up. And I think it's important in translation studies to help young translators or students, young translators, to, to find out what's best for them. Because if I'd been forced to either do a, a rough draft from beginning to end and then go back, and, and if I was told this is the only way to translate... I don't think I would have, the translations would have worked out. So the fact that I did that secretly without any tutelage, I think was a good thing. And I'm careful with my own students to, to let them find out what's best for them personally so that they can have successful translations. Now, what is your opinion about a translator and author fit? That's a very important question. I think a translator needs to understand what his or her range is. It doesn't mean that, that be, because you are a very experienced translator with lots of successful translations, let's say, that you can absolutely translate whoever. So maybe the most successful translators are those who know who they can translate and people who work on projects that are not a good fit, then falter. That's probably a very obvious thing to say, but it'd be interesting, it's interesting to see how many translators are not aware that maybe it's not a good fit. For instance, I, there are certain authors that I would never translate, dare to translate. Franz Kafka is, is one, who, the, uh, the great Kafka. It might seem simple and direct, but there's so much happening in every sentence that I don't think I could do catch those three or four or five layers of sentence. So I would avoid translating him personally. 
On the other hand, complicated writers like like Chekhov, I feel very comfortable with personally. So regardless of what people might think of my translations of Chekhov, I he for me is a very good fit. And there, I could do over a thousand words because it was like he he took me by the hand and dragged me along and flying high and translating with a sort of a with, with a joy. Particularly as these were also comical stories with amazing comical timing. So it was just very enjoyable, very good fit for me, from my perspective. So what what you say is is more important than many translators realize that the fit has to be right. You need to understand um, a, a Greek poet who I find very attractive and who I want, would have wanted to translate Phoebe Yanisi, for instance. I, I realized that actually she was out of my range somewhat. And one of my students at the time who had published uh, several poetry books, um, uh, Brian Sneedon, I felt was a very good fit because I'd read his own personal poetry and I thought, oh, they actually would work very well together. So I'd suggested Brian Sneedon to Phoebe Yanisi because of that fit. And and initially, even though she might have been surprised that I would have suggested a graduate student to translate her, she immediately noticed that, yes, actually, it was a very good fit. And now they, I think they've got their third book coming out with new directions. Yes, we translators need to be aware of that. You've hit on a very important point. You had a long and fulfilling career in translation. Uh, what are the changes that you witnessed over the years in the field of translation? As far as the identity of the translator is concerned, in the 1980s, we still had situations where the translator was, we still do now, unfortunately, but things have changed. Let's say where the translator was discarded, maybe not mentioned. It was very rare to have a translator mentioned on the cover of a book. It, that still doesn't always happen now, but. One of the big differences, I think, is that translation is now seen as as an important creative element. If you have a Chekhov book in English, it is not Chekhov; it is Peter Constantine's version of Chekhov, let's say, and that 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 is something that has become a bit more visible and more. We're not as invisible as we were. So it's the visibility of the translator has changed. I think that's an important thing. I think in academe as well, now t translation is held in higher esteem. We have many programs in Britain, but also in, in the United States. So, so la large and energetic departments that teach translation theory. So translation theory has developed a lot since I started over the last 30 years. That, that, I think, these are very important elements and changes. Now, probably the most stunning change, of course, is the what people call liquid modernity, meaning the internet. There, I would say that, that is amazing. Now, I was one of the very first to be using a word processor when I started translating. It had 25 KB memory. So I could do a few pages and then put them on one of those enormous diskettes. And that meant an, a new flexibility, not having to write by hand or by typewriter. So that was one thing. Then 
but even in those days, uh, I would go, I would collect words that I didn't didn't understand and that were not in my dictionaries. And then on Fridays, go to the New York Public Library on 42nd Street here in New York and spend the day looking them up in the big dictionaries that they had over there. So that now, the words that I was looking up then, put drop them in Google and there you go. What a change. That, that has really changed things, I think, for translators. And the next thing now, of course, is machine translation. Lots of translators will use, like Google Translate, for instance, even for literary works, we'll, we'll put in passages and then maybe edit them. I don't know where that's going to go. That's, that's the next generation, which I, can't, I personally cannot embrace, but, but it'll be interesting to see how the machines work. Uh, there's a prediction that in the future, not the too distant future, translations will be done by machines and then people like myself would be the editors. Let's say somebody, hopefully, who knows Russian, for instance, might go through and see if the machine has caught everything. So we would become like glorified editors. I don't know if that's the future of translation, but it seems that it might be. So when did you first translate a book that was in 1990s, early 1990s? Yes, the first was the uh, six stories by six early stories by Thomas Mann, and there too, the so Thomas Mann, the the great German author, Nobel Prize winner, had yeah, there was uh, these were stories that were not known, had not been translated. It was an important book in a sense, small, but but it was an, again an important element of a, of a major author who was not known, and. Uh, so that, that what happened was it was my first book. It got the Penn Translation Prize, and that changed everything. So when that happens, which is of course a very unexpected, it opened the doors to other books. So straight away, I was offered a, a possibility to do Chekhov, and there too I tried. I wanted to not to translate the major stories of Anton Chekhov that people knew, the Lady with a Lapdog stories of that kind, but to show a side of Chekhov that was unknown. I translated about 200 stories that had not been translated before. And then that, that got the National Translation Award too. So what, what I would say about that is awards are, are really like lottery. It's because there's so many good books out there. So many fasc fascinating translations just happens that one was chosen for whatever reason by a jury. But when that happens at the beginning of the career, the doors open. So I had an easier time, I think, than most be because of that lottery, that luck uh, with the first two books that I did. This identity of the translator, did it bother you? I, I must say that it, it, it didn't bother me. What, what happened was that I was very young. I did the, these books that were like, like bestsellers in their own ways. There were articles, newspaper, New York Times, this, that, the other photographs. There was a lot of fanfare, which I was also accused of, like being out there a bit loud and uh, influencer. Not that it really, that word existed back then, but that I had that kind of a mentality. Um, and some people were not too happy about that. Why, why, why am I being photographed in, in, the, in the New York Times when I'm just a translator? Okay, I'm not saying that with bitterness, but it was a very new concept because we were not supposed to. It's not about you, it's about the book. And I think that could be seen as 
I, I can understand why why that is. But yes, and I was accused of, of being a little bit too out there. But I also wonder, I think I was one of the first generation where translators did come out into the forefront. Despite those accusations, maybe it was a good thing. And now you see these superstars, young translators like Anton Herr, for instance, who are very much the star, much better known than the actual author. And I think that's a great thing. So maybe if maybe it was not such a bad thing after all. Yeah. I came to know about Bora Chang very late. <laughs> Cursed Bunny. It's ah, a yes. wonderful uh, mm-hmm. book, actually. I read it. So mm-hmm. It was about aunt and her. Uh, then I came to know there is an author called Bora Chang. <laughs> ah, yes. Yes, yeah. People like Anton Herr, uh, who writes so much about translation in such a, an energetic and, and fun way and have a great following, ah, influencers, yeah, if you want to use that word, uh, I think that's great. So I'm for it. I'm absolutely for that. And I think it's wonderful there's a new generation of interesting, attractive, fascinating people who, who are working, where you're interested in, in that person. It's that. It's the antidote to the invisibility that we grew up with. Tell us about your publishing house, uh, Word Poetry Books. Yes, yeah, so Word Poetry Books is a, it's a, a press that does specializes in poetry in translation in English. That's all we do, and that kind of specialization is something that that I have wanted to. It's been something I want that, that's been a, a burning interest for me throughout my life, being at the University of Connecticut and having that opportunity to start the press in connection with the University of Connecticut was was something that, that Academe brought that I was very pleased with. How many books you published so far? So we have a new editor, uh, Matvey Jankelevich, and we, we have an upcoming uh, 20 titles. It's, uh, so we start, when he came in, about two years ago, we had five titles. It is absolutely, it's absolutely flowered out, I think, in a very energetic way. I think within the next two or three years, we are just going to be producing book after book. Now, having spent so much time in translations, uh, how did you get into writing a novel? Uh, the, the, so the novel, The, the Purchased Bride, which, uh, which uh, came out earlier this year, it, it's something I've been working on actually for the last twenty years. It, it's not a major that made it sound like it's a seven hundred page book or something, it's, which it's not. But it, it took so long to write because I, I wrote it in, in in bits and pieces, and that is because it was something I wanted to look into the family history, my father's side of the family, but I always felt that I'm a literary translator, not a novelist. I will say I still feel that that way. This was something I wanted to write. And yes, it was done piece by piece over a period of 20 years. So if I were to start again, people have asked me if I'm going to do a sequel. I don't know that I'd have the energy uh, to do that over the next 20 years because I'm actually more fascinated in translation, in translating what other people. I'm more interested in what other people have to say than what I might want to express myself and maybe that's the one of the qualities of, of a translator 
wanting to read and wanting to bring that work into the language, into the translator's language. I read that this past suppressed in your family. Yes. Now it it is a novel, but it's triggered by the Turkish the Turkish side of my family. And father, so my father's parents, in other words. So my father was in his fifties when I was born, and his father was in his fifties when he was born. So we're talking here at the beginning of the last centuries when this book. So my father was born in nineteen fourteen. The the book is set in nineteen o nine in Istanbul in Constantinople, in then the Ottoman Empire. It is a novel. It's not a memoir. It might look like it's a memoir, but because also the the fact that, as you pointed out, the information was suppressed, my, my family did not really want to talk about the Turkish side of things. It was more of, and my my father never wanted to really discuss his mother. He felt his father was was a an admiral man he admired and wanted to be like. His mother, not. She was quite insignificant to him. So she was in real life. She was thirteen, not fifteen. I made her fifteen in the novel, so that. So when Maria in the novel is purchased by this older man, she's fifteen. Because, actually, I, there's a lot of inner life that I explore, and I felt that a fifteen-year-old would 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 may maybe be easier to treat as an author so i guess that's my confession there but it it is a novel and not not a memoir so so i think i want to admit straight away that, that there are these elements that that were invented but she coming from a far away place and she will be bought you know by her would be husband purchasing of of very young girls by wealthier ottomans was a practice uh, we, today it looks like slavery because uh, there's no agency but by the young girl i will say the word girl she it was we're talking about 12 and 13 year olds definitely not a young woman my father as well thought that practice was benign how wonderful that his father had saved a very poor insignificant girl and given her opportunities now had she not been so beautiful and had she not been so elegant and all that she wouldn't have been saved so there's that side too which is not discussed so if you were young and, and beautiful in the right type then that meant that you would be placed well if not so I had an issue with that of course which is why I want to explore that and yeah, the protagonist Maria is really an aspect of various young women of, of the family and of the time. Now, that too, she was uh, not the only wife, right? She was one among many. Yeah, uh, yeah so in, in, Muslims can have up to four wives and then concubines as well, at least at the time. I think it's a practice now that's not really done, except in very wealthy families today, because it you need... To keep a household with many wives and concubines is a very complicated and expensive thing to do. It was back then too. At the beginning of the last century, even the wealthiest Ottomans were, were no longer really doing that because 
because of the complexity. It was easier, let's say, to have maybe a second wife or a, or a concubine in, in, a, in a villa somewhere and then visit than to have everyone in one household. So that's really almost an anachronism, uh, something that would have been done in the 19th century uh, much more. But the Ottoman Empire came to an end in uh, 1924, and that's when all of that ended. And uh, Ataturk then stepped in and, and modernized Turkey in this very energetic and aggressive way. Veiling as well. Women's veils in the 1920s were ripped off their faces if they walked with a veil in the street. Now that's no longer the case. I think Turkey is mo moving back in its interests and mindset to an Ottoman period. I don't mean that, there, that there's a regression to the Ottoman period, but let's say it's held in higher esteem than it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. Now, these details to write, obviously you say that it's fictionalized to a certain extent, right? But other details, how could you gather? Growing up in Greece, there are two aspects of that. First of all, Greece and Turkey were... When I was growing up in Greece, you couldn't really say you were of Turkish background because of the Ottoman rule for 500 years of Greece. There's been a lot of animosity between the two countries, but they are still neighbors. So I think growing up there, the, the mentality and the, and the, let's say the mindset was familiar enough. That's one thing. Then much of the book describes the Greek, the Pontic and Greek communities in Asia Minor. And that's something that, that we're very aware of in Greece. And the family, would, my aunts would talk about aspects. It was constantly around in the air, but not really discussed in any specific way. So it pick up these elements. Then the, there was also some research involved because I discussed certain political things. And I just wanted to be sure that they were right. So I would read newspapers from the time, from 1909, in order to just to see what the public opinion was and to, yeah, just to check on certain facts. So research was also an element there. So research uh, involved uh, talking to your own family too? Yes. Yeah, so the first, the first version of the, of the, the book I showed to my father and he was very ple pleased with it. He felt that it, actually, he felt that it was, he said it's exactly how it happened, which I don't think is quite the case, but for some reason, and I've always wondered, like, why is he saying, oh, this is just picture, the exact picture? And I'm wondering whether he meant that it catches the spirit of what was going on. He also thought I presented my grandfather in a very elegant way. He was happy about that, even though I'm not sure how positive my grandfather comes out in, in this novel. But he read it as a positive thing because I think he recognized him. My grandfather had been a very elegant, good-looking man, very stylish. And I, I do underline that. But he is purchasing a 15-year-old girl while he's doing that. And, and my father did not seem to have an issue with that. So other family members ready too? Who, your father, sisters, brothers, your aunts or uncles? So if my father were alive now, he would be a hundred and a hundred and nine. 
So this is why I'm saying that I've been working over this over 20 years. So the very first draft, which was just the the outline, it was already a, in a novel form. It might have looked a bit more experimental than it does now, but it had exactly all the elements that it that this book, that the, the Purchase Bride, has were all there. I'm pleased that he looked at it, and I'm pleased that he was pleased with it because that that is a sort of a relief. In fact, not a relief. It is a relief. But my aunts, other people are not not with us anymore. The picture that I see on the cow page, is it your grandmother or? Oh no, it's not actually. I hope I'm not destroying a myth here. But I I have my my father did not want any. I had no photographs of my grandfather or my grandmother. Even though very many Turkish photographs, because he had cases of, of photographs that that their family had taken with them from Turkey. Among them, not a single photograph of my grandmother and none of my grandfather. So that I don't know why that is the case. Uh, for, for the cover, I wanted someone who looked innocent and yet sophisticated and maybe 14 or 15 years old. So I was very happy with this image that the cover designer, Kyle Hunter, had, had chosen. Yes. The reason for writing this novel, is it because you wanted to get connected to your past or you wanted to explore the social history at that time? I think both. Initially, I just wanted to find out more about this problem. I felt that problems with my father had all stemmed from his Turkish upbringing. His very specific, what had happened, which he didn't see as a problem. He thought it was wonderful. But the fact that he sided with his father and that he disregarded his mother, uh, I felt was the kind of, maybe that it translated itself also into our own family, the way he, uh, it was a very strong feeling that men are very important and women are not. And that this was a, that he was very much, even though he really, he had a Jaguar and a cigar and looked like a British gentleman in a Savile Row suit, that he was Ottoman actually and not, never really a modern British person. So for me, this was an, an, an enigma. I wanted to look into it. It was a problem. Also, the problem of really being somehow Turkish, but not having a Turkish name, being crypto-Turkish, hidden in, in Greece. Admitting to, in Greece, it was considered that I was of, of Greek and Austrian background with the Greek name Petros, Peter, not Mehmet. All of what made them really turn their backs on their Ottoman past, the whole family, so energetically on one hand, and what made them also so proud of being Ottoman on the other. So there was this schizophrenia that was very, well, troubling and a great mystery. And I wanted to explore that and spoke to him. Now, the stories were always shifting as well. Who knows what's true and what isn't? The fact that that he also felt that the elements that I had invented, because I couldn't find out Maria's friends, for instance, in the refugee camps. I don't know if I'm ruining the, the plot, but I made them up. But he was like, yes, that's exactly how it was. Okay. Now, what are you currently working on, Peter? So I'm working on on some. South African, two South African poets, Ronelda Kampfer and Nathan Trantral. Um, 
They're, they're from Cape Town in South Africa, and they write in Afrikaans and in Kaps. So Kaps is a is a version of Afrikaans that is spoken in Cape Town. And absolutely fascinating poetry, and I'm translating them into Greek. So the book's going to come out with Teflon in, I think, in March. And that's what I mentioned earlier about having the the joy and the luxury of working from a language that I, that I very much enjoy, Afrikaans, to into Greek, which is just a lovely experience for me. And so my editor, who's also the editor of the press, Jazra Khalid, who's Chechen Greek, he happens to be a very sensitive editor, particularly with poetry. He's a poet as well. Actually, when you have an editor who's also a, a major poet, that's the, when it's really wonderful, because then every nuance, every word is discussed. In fact, I have two editors. I also have uh, another Greek translator, um, Iliopoulos, with who, uh, whom I, I passed the, the sort of workshop, the poems. Now, that's actually something that's new as well, and I think done much more now than it used to be done, where, where people work in groups on translations and, and share the translations and discuss things. So uh, I think from having been quite an isolated craft back in the 70s and 80s and, and 90s, it's becoming more and more of a group thing where people work together, and it does make sense. So I'm very happy about that. And I've also actually trans tra just translated Ronaldo Kampfer and uh, Trantral into German as well. So I'm both their German and their, their Greek translator, which is a bit peculiar. But uh, it's being, that book's being published, be being sent around to German publishers right now. Uh, finally, could you please read a paragraph or two from Purchase Bride? The Viewing, Summer 1909, Constantinople. My grandfather walks down the long corridor to the room where Maria and the other two girls he has purchased are waiting to be viewed. Maria has not seen the other girls before. They're both 15, like she is. They've been brought from across the border in Batum. And like her, they've each been sequestered in a separate room for a week before this final viewing that will decide their fates. Despite the warm afternoon, my grandfather is in formal attire a monocle that glints in the light, and white gloves fine enough for his rings to fit over the fingers. He's both a modern Ottoman and a conservative Muslim, so he considers the choosing of girls for his household a solemn occasion. It is now to be seen whether the girls will please him enough to stay on as concubines, please him only mildly and stay on as servants, or please him not at all and be sent away to be sold to other households. By the time my grandmother Maria entered his home, my grandfather had been purchasing girls for over 30 years, and during this time, a fixed protocol had evolved. He and his first wife, Grandmother Zakia, whom he married when he was 20 and she was 16, review the girls together, each with their own set of priorities. Grandfather looks for beauty, grace, European features, a lean but busty line, a natural demureness, and what he calls a many-pronged wit. Once a girl is accepted into his household as a concubine, she's there to stay, and within a decade her wit might be her only recourse against the fading of her charms. Grandmother Zekiev views the purchased girls through a narrow prism. Her eye probes torsos and thighs, 
in search of imperfections a man might not immediately notice. If a girl is to be resold, it will have to be before grandfather takes her virginity. So Zekier looks for any flaws that might dampen his interest after his initial excitement pales. She also has a knack for evaluating the durability of a teenage breast, chin or hip. Slim at 13 does not mean slim at 18. One chin can turn into three. A girl might be prone to pimples, which is acceptable, even charming, but only if the pimples are not the kind that leave blemishes. An equal important purpose of Zekia's inspection is to determine if a girl will fit into the inflexible hierarchy of the household. Is the newcomer quick learner clever enough to acquire elegant Turkish? Will she be good at taking direction? Will she manage to keep a pleasing individuality, but still bow to the senior women of the harem? In the three decades that Grandmother Zekier has been running Grandfather's household, no wives, concubines, or maidservants have entered the harem without her approval. But her choices have always been right, and Grandfather has always been pleased with them. Many of Grandfather's peers have found life at home a strain, their peace soured by ill-tempered wives and warring concubines. There's a growing trend in Constantinople and the larger towns of the Ottoman Empire for even the wealthiest men to turn their backs on the Islamic dispensation that allows them four wives and as many concubines as they can afford to keep, and instead to limit themselves to one wife and perhaps one or two women outside the house, women they keep in private villas and visit secretly. Zekier prefers the old ways that allow her to keep an eye on things. A well-run house can make its master's life pleasant, and Grandfather has found himself able to avoid the drabness of marital monotony through the occasional introduction of fresh faces into his home. The drawing-room door opens and Grandfather enters. Zekier puts down the book that she has been reading and hurries over to him. She too is dressed formally in the floor-length evening gown. She holds her ostrich fan to her cheeks, whispers something to Grandfather in French, and then points at the three girls, who are standing by the large window that opens out onto one of the harem gardens. Grandfather smiles and whispers something in reply, at which she pouts playfully and taps him on the shoulder with her fan. She hangs her arm into his, and they walk across the drawing room toward the frightened girls. The girls, though unveiled, are dressed in long silk jackets that reach to the floor. Their first appearance before grandfather is to be in the guise of modest Turkish maidens, the kind with which an Ottoman gentleman might wish to fill his household. They are an attractive assortment, grandmother Zekia says in French. That they are, grandfather replies. I am particularly pleased with the green-eyed one, Zekia continues, pointing her fan at my grandmother Maria. Shall we view her first? They walk up to Maria, who looks directly into Grandfather's eyes and then slowly lowers her gaze, as Zekia told her to do when she prepared the girls for viewing. Your future master will want to see your eyes, Zekia said, but only for an instant. A girl must not stare into a man's eyes for too long, even if he is to be her master. She speaks a pretty Turkish, Zekia says. It's a strange and un peu tartare, but it's pretty. Greetings, I'm Mehmet, Grandfather says to Maria. Greetings, I'm Maria, answers, looking up again, though she is not sure whether she is supposed to. 
His monocle catches her eye, and she's amazed that the round piece of glass can remain in place. He's older than she expected. There's silver in his hair. She thought that her future husband would perhaps be her brother's age, but now realizes how foolish that thought was. A great man, a grandee, would be one who has done many things in his life, not a boy. Still, Mr. Mehmet is too distinguished to be a bridegroom, she thinks, surmising that he must be her master's father, the head of a household, who has come to view the girls who are to be the brides of his son. This morning, Zekia did not introduce herself to the girls. She just assembled them in the small chamber and with gestures and simple Turkish phrases told them what to do. So Maria believes Zekia might be her master's mother. What if they don't like me and send me away, she suddenly wonders. Greetings, Maria, grandfather says, pronouncing her name in a strange and foreign way. Greetings, I'm Maria, she says, and then smiles, realizing she has just repeated herself. Grandfather smiles too. The most unfortunate part in the whole affair is that his wife supports it, being a woman. From what my father told me, a very... Like, she remained in Turkey when they left, and she wanted my father to return to Turkey. She was in Adana, in, in a city in Turkey, and for many years petitioned that he be sent to Turkey so she could raise him. So, yeah, I don't really, I shouldn't say this as the author, but let's say I don't know anything about Zekia except that tragic thing that, that she would have wanted him as a son. Thank you for such a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Peter. Oh, thank you very much. So you are going to Greece. Happy journey. Have a great time there. Uh, yeah, and I'm, leave I'm leaving tomorrow evening, yeah.